Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, welcome to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are joined by Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, there's a lot going on this week, and we, we touch on what's happening in the Supreme Court from time to time, but I think uh, this week we've got some pretty serious material to go over. Well, yes, but as we were saying earlier, you know, we try to stay away from politics and from religion and from law. Not going to happen today. We don't succeed very well, do we? <laughs> in fact, these subjects are so closely related. Law and politics are closely related because of the political process that puts laws into effect. And laws are based upon morality. And morality has its roots in religious belief, whatever that religious may be. So you can't separate these, and you shouldn't. But we certainly have had a lot of developments, and right now what is on everybody's mind is the leak in the Supreme Court, and so I'm going to swim against the grain a little bit and talk about something else first. We will talk about that in just a little bit, but last Monday we had a very significant decision from the Supreme Court, not only for what it means for the parties involved, but for what it means for several cases that are probably going to be decided before the end of June. And I'm talking about the case of Shirtliff versus City of Boston. Now, Shirtliff is a pastor, and he and his church were having an activity, an activity that they call Constitution Camp. This is a church that believes that the Constitution of the United States was designed with biblical principles in mind, and that our Young people need to know those principles, and so this Constitution camp was designed to teach those principles, and they were holding the camp in a city park in downtown Boston. Now, there's been a practice in Boston for many years that any organization that holds an activity in the city park is allowed to fly the flag of that organization while their event is taking place. And... In fact, in the past several years, over 300 organizations have used the park and have flown their flags with permission from the city. And that includes great gay pride organizations and diversity-type organizations, other things like this. But when this organization, the Christian Church, asked to fly their flag, which was the Christian flag with the cross on it, they were turned down. The city said this would be an establishment of religion. Now, there's more of this than might seem at first, because when you first look at this, you might think, well, flying a flag in a city park on a city flagpole, flying a Christian flag on that city flagpole, that certainly sounds like an establishment of religion. But when you consider that the city has let every other organization that has applied fly their flagpole on that flag, and this is the only organization that has not been allowed, then it seems like it's discrimination against one organization, discrimination against religion. Anyway, so when the case went up to the Supreme Court, and actually Pastor Shirtliff has lost his case, in the federal district court and in the 
First Circuit Court of Appeals. But when the case went up to the U.S. Supreme Court, we of the Foundation for Moral Law filed a amicus or friend of the court brief on his behalf, behalf of his church. And part of the argument of this case, we need to understand here, is the city is arguing and the lower court said, this is what is called government speech. Now, that's a strange doctrine, government speech, but let me try to unpack and explain what that doctrine means. When the city puts up a sign with directions where to go someplace or sign maybe a bronze plaque on a building saying that this building is, this is the name of it. It was built in this year and it was a little of the history of it and so on. That is considered to be a statement that the government has made, something that the government has thought through. They placed it there intending it to be at least relatively permanent and sending a message that the government wants to send. And when the government decides to have what they call government speech like this, that doesn't mean that everybody else is entitled to present a contrary position. If we, for example, have a bronze plaque in the city park talking about the history of the Puritans in Boston and so on, they don't have to let other people have contrary messages and so on, because as we say, that's government speech. But this doctrine of government speech has been really a fairly recent doctrine. It begins with a case from out in Utah, the Samoom case. And in the Samoom case, you had a city there in Utah that had placed the Ten Commandments in a city park, and Samoom said, well, we are a separate religious organization, we have our own commandments, and we want to put a monument there in the park beside it with our commandments. Well, since this was a city monument set up by the city and so on, the Supreme Court said that this was government speech and they didn't need to give contrary viewpoints. Well, so what the city has tried to argue here in this case is that this is government speech and only speech that is approved by the government can be placed on that flagpole, and that does not include the church flag. Another case involving government speech was from Texas, where the Texas Department of Motor Vehicles, you know, when they sell specialty plates and various organizations like the American Legion and other organizations can get a specialty license plate that you can buy for a certain amount and you place that on your car and the state makes it of course for you and so on but you pay extra for that and the organization usually gets a certain portion of what you paid for it but the sons of confederate veterans wanted a specialty plate which they have in some states but in texas they said no that would be a message of racism, I disagree with that, but they said that would be a message of racism that the state of Texas does not want to endorse, and so we're not going to allow that plate. And the Sons of Confederate Veterans sued, and the Supreme Court said that license plates, since they are made by the state, and since the state retains considerable control and what you put on your license, like your license number, and things like this, and used for state purposes, like the highway patrol identifying you and so on. This is government speech, 
And so they don't have to allow other organizations to have their specialty plates if they don't want to. I, as I say, I disagree with that decision, but that's the idea of government speech. So the city is saying here, this is government speech and anything on the city flagpole is government speech. And therefore, we don't have to allow anything on that flagpole we don't want to allow, and we don't want to allow this Christian flag. And we think allowing it would violate the establishment clause of the First Amendment. Well, the Supreme Court just ruled essentially as what we had argued. We argued, no, it is not government speech because you're letting every organization, over 300 organizations, you've let them put their flags up there and you haven't gone through these and scrutinized them. You just rubber stamp them until you came to this one. And not only that, but these are temporary. They're up for a few hours while their event is going on and then they're taken down again. This isn't government speech. Well, the Supreme Court agreed with that. In fact, in a five, or rather a, a nine-zero decision, decision, by the way, written by Justice Breyer, the justice who's going to be retiring in a couple of months and will re be replaced by this newly confirmed justice, Justice Jackson, who is not on this case yet. She's not on the court yet. She has been confirmed, but she will not take office until Breyer resigns at the end of June. But he's the one who wrote the opinion. He said the government has not been controlling what goes on at flagpoles. They've been allowing just about anybody to put something on it without scrutinizing their message. So this isn't government speech. That being the case, they cannot discriminate against a church because of the nature of the speech that they want to put on that flagpole. And so in a 9-0 decision, the Supreme Court said that the city of Boston violated the free speech rights of Shirtliff and his church by refusing to let them put that flagpole on the flag, or, or that flag on, on the flagpole. Now, that is going to have a lot of relevance for uh, quite a few cases, but especially for another case that is being argued before the Supreme Court, argued a couple of weeks ago, and a case in which we're probably going to get a decision before the end of June. But let's talk about that one after the break. to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Again, we're talking with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Have to say, Colonel, I'm encouraged. I wouldn't have expected the Supreme Court to come down on the side of, uh, you know, a Christian organization. Maybe I'm just getting cynical, but that's kind of a welcome relief. Well, part of the reason the court did this is we've had several decisions recently that said that, first of all, you know, we have that American Legion versus American Humanist Association case where the Supreme Court said it was not an establishment clause violation to allow the Bladensburg Cross, a 30-foot cross erected on a public highway in Maryland in honor of soldiers who had died in World War I, but that was not a violation of the establishment clause. And we've had several cases like the Trinity Lutheran Church case involving giving financial aid for 
church school parking lots and so on for making them safer for children and the like. And with cases like this, the court has been saying recently, the government cannot discriminate against religion. Put those together and I really expected that we were going to win the Shirtliff case. I didn't think it was going to be a 9-0 decision like it was, but I'm very, very pleased that the decision came out as it did. But you think about that, what the court is saying here especially, not only that you can't discriminate against religious speech, they're also saying that the doctrine of government speech, what constitutes government speech, is very limited. And saying that it has to be something that expresses a message that the government has pretty well controlled, has put a lot of thought to, into, has perhaps manufactured itself, and that the government has set out there for intending it to be at least relatively permanent. Okay, that ties in with another case that was argued before the Supreme Court just a couple of weeks ago, and that, again, we'll probably have a decision on it by the end of June. And this is the case of Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. Bremerton School District is in Washington State, and Joe Kennedy is the school district's high school football coach. And Kennedy, Coach Kennedy, at the close of football games, had a practice that he would go out to the 50-yard line. He would take a knee on the 50-yard line, and he would pray. This is at the close of every game. At first, he did this himself, and then some of his players would come out and join him, and more and more would do so. And then, as it progressed, players from the opposing team would come out and join in prayer as well. No one had to, but many did. And other people that were there at the game might join as well. All this was going on just fine until 2015, when the school board decided that this was an establishment clause violation, and they ordered Coach Kennedy to stop. He said, I've been directed by God to do this. It is God's will that I pray, and I must obey God rather than men. And as a result, the school district fired him. He filed a lawsuit, and the case has worked its way back up and down through the courts for quite a few years. As I say, that was 2015, and now finally it's been argued before the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, what the school district has argued in this case is that they can control what Coach Kennedy says out there and stop him from speaking or control what he says, because what a coach says during a game is, remember that term now, government speech. And so we can control what he says. We argued in our amicus brief before the court that if that is government speech, then anything a teacher says in a classroom from the beginning of the day to the end is government speech. And that's clearly contrary to what the Supreme Court itself has said in other cases, Tinker versus Des Moines Independent Community School District, 1969, where the court said, neither students nor teachers shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate and recognized that both students and teachers have at least certain First Amendment rights in the classroom and in the halls of the school. 
And if they have those rights in the classroom and in the halls where attendance is, to some extent, compulsory, they certainly have free speech rights when they're out there on the football field where no one has to attend the football game. Anyway, so we filed an amicus brief in support of Coach Kennedy, arguing that that would be a gross abuse of the government speech doctrine, and that this is therefore private speech. And since it is private speech, the school district has discriminated against Coach Kennedy by refusing to allow him to come out there and pray and firing him for doing so. Now, as to whether it's government speech or not, Again, I would say that the Shirtliff case that we just talked about, the flagpole case, is very relevant. When the court said that a flag of an organization on a flagpole in a city park is not, at least under those circumstances, government speech, that tells me that they want to limit this doctrine of government speech. And I think they will limit it also in the Coach Kennedy case as well. So what happened in Shirtliff? I think is very encouraging news for Coach Kennedy and for the whole cause of religious liberty in this country in general. I'd only say one thing further about Boston and the Shirtliff case. And this is one point we made that Boston was founded around 1630 by the Puritans. Can you imagine what the Puritans would think that <laughs> now some 400 years later, here in the city we founded, we can have gay pride flags, but we can't have Christian flags. They would turn over in their graves. Now, I'm not sure what the Puritans would think about what happened in the Supreme Court last Monday evening, this leaking of a document. I, they'd probably wonder, well, why are we talking about leaking documents from a court? But what went on there? is very strange. And as we know what happened, that there had been a draft opinion that had been written by Justice Alito, and in this draft opinion, the Roe versus Wade abortion decision over, would be overturned if that became the official decision of the court. That decision was circulated among the other justices, and apparently, we have reason to believe that five justices agreed with that decision. Justice Alito, Justice Thomas, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Barrett, and that Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, as far as we know, had not made up his mind what he was going to do on the case yet. That's what it appears. Now, when this came out, my first thought was that this is probably a hoax that somebody put together from the outside. I mean, I read enough of Alito's opinions. I know enough about how Alito thinks that I could probably write a decision that would somewhat parallel what Alito might very well write and might look somewhat credible. And somebody in the outside could have done this. However, Justice Alito has confirmed that, yes, in fact, he did write this opinion, but it is only a draft opinion. And there in the Supreme Court, what they will do sometimes is, first of all, they will have a vote. And usually that vote will take place within a couple of days after the oral arguments on the Dobbs versus Jackson case. That's 
the case we're talking about here, the case involving the Mississippi law that if that law is upheld, it could result in overruling the Roe versus Wade abortion decision. Anyway, so that being the case, it would be dramatic consequences for the nation if Roe versus Wade is overturned. And so people are concerned about trying to derail this impossible. More after the break. This is Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. All right, a lot of people are talking about the uh, leaked draft of a Supreme Court decision that may overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, Colonel, you were about to tell us how Justice Alito uh, was assigned to write that. Well, like I was saying, after the oral arguments in a case take place, usually within a day or two, the justices will meet, they will discuss the case. They've all heard the arguments. They've all read the briefs and so on. They've had a lot of input from their own staffs and so on. And then they will take a vote. And anyway, the chief justice, if he has voted with the prevailing side, then he will assign the writing of the majority opinion to one of the justices who voted with the prevailing side. And... That means the Chief Justice has a great deal of power because if he wants a very strong opinion written in a case like this, he could assign it to Justice Thomas or Justice Alito. If he wants maybe a more moderate opinion written, he might assign it to Justice Kavanaugh or to Justice Barrett, or he might decide to write it himself. That's assuming that Justice Roberts did vote with the prevailing side. Anyway, if Roberts voted with, <clears throat> with the prevailing side, then he would assign the writing of the majority opinion, and this would mean that he had voted with the prevailing side, and he signed he assigned it to Justice Alito. Now, if he did not vote with the prevailing side, then the senior justice who voted with the prevailing side would assign the writing of the majority opinion, and that would in all probability mean that Justice Thomas would be the one who made the assignment. Either way, by either Justice Thomas or by Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Alito was assigned to write that opinion. Now, other justices who voted with the prevailing side might decide that they will concur with this opinion, or maybe they decide, you know, I still agree with this viewpoint, <clears throat> but... I don't think I agree with all the reasoning, so I'm going to write a concurring opinion. Sometimes they might concur with parts of the opinion and dissent from other parts and so on. So it gets very complicated. But as the opinion then is circulated, other justices will indicate I'm signing on to it or I'm not signing on to it and so on. That is the stage at which the brief was at this time. Or I mean the opinion was at this time. Justice Alito had written a preliminary opinion he had basically circulated it and rated, pardon for the pun from the Charlotte case that I taught before, but taking his opinion and running up the flagpole and see who salutes it, 
And anyway, we don't know beyond that stage, except we're told that at least five justices had been in agreement with this, and Justice Roberts was not sure. That we're, we're not sure of. Anyway, an opinion like this, though, is only tenant. And in fact, even after the justices have already said, okay, I'm signing on to this one, or I'm writing a concurring opinion, or I'm dissenting, even when the justices have done that, they can still change their minds anytime before the decision is actually released. <clears throat> and so what we see here right now is not necessarily final. It could have been changed even if it hadn't been released. Since it has been released, even so, it could be changed. Now, that raises the question, as I think you were going to ask the question about, what was, was it what you were wondering, Brian? I just, I, I've seen a lot of concern over the fact that, that something like this was leaked in the first place. And I don't understand exactly um, what, to, what would the purpose be for uh, such privacy or, or the need to keep these kinds of things under wrap until it's officially released. Good question. Why is it so important that we have secrecy in the court? The reason is that we want the court to be free from outside pressure, outside political influence. Now that this opinion has been released, we are already seeing people in Congress denouncing this opinion. We're hearing threats that we're going to pack the court or we're going to file impeachment proceedings or things like this. Well, justices should be able to make the decisions they think that are right without worrying about that kind of pressure. And so that's one of the reasons that we have this practice of secrecy in the court. And anyway, that is probably also the reason that that secrecy was violated here. Why did somebody release this opinion? Very likely, when this opinion was circulated, one of the staff attorneys or law clerks or interns with one of the liberal justices decided we've got to derail this at all possible. And so as a desperation move, they decided that ends justify the means and it'd be a lesser evil to breach the rules of ethics on this, even jeopardizing their own legal career and release this to the public. So there'd be a firestorm of pressure that would cause at least one of those five justices to change his, and his or her mind on this opinion. That was, in all probability, the reason it was released. Now, that's the very thing that we have the secrecy to prevent. I don't think it's going to work. I think that, if anything, this would cause those justices to be more solidified in what they'd originally voted than before, because otherwise it would appear that they were caving into political pressure. I might tell you that for some years, before I came to work with the Foundation for Moral Law, I served as senior staff attorney for the Alabama Supreme Court. And we had a breach of that. At least we think we had a breach at that time. And when I explain what happened, you can see why this is important. That there was a case. It involved a multi-million dollar lawsuit against a company. This company had refused to make a settlement. And any, <clears throat> anyway... So the case went to the Alabama Supreme Court. It was argued in the Supreme Court. The justices conferred, and they voted. 
And frankly, in the vote, the company that was being sued lost the vote. Now, within a day or two of that vote taking place, the company suddenly made a very generous settlement offer. Not quite the amount that the justices have decided to award, but a very generous settlement offer. Now, why did they do that? In all probability, they did it because somebody had tipped them off that the justices had voted against them. And honestly, in this case, what we did is, you know, we, we put in some procedures to tighten security. But as far as I can recall, while well, I was on the court at least, we never found out how the leak took place or even for sure if there was a leak. Seems likely there was, but we don't know that for sure. Honestly, my, for my own belief on this, I have some doubts that the person who leaks this information to the Supreme Court will ever be discovered. If it is discovered, they will certainly be fired. In all probability, they will be disbarred and probably disbarred permanently, probably will never practice law again. Although, if it was from one of the liberal justices on the court, when an intern working for them, they might very well find plenty of liberal organizations that will give them jobs. Right. Not as practicing lawyers. But had, if it was one of the justices that did it, and some have suggested this couldn't have been done without the justice concurring or approving it being done, I doubt that any of those liberal justices would have approved this. At least two of the three, and I'm not even going to identify the one possible exception, I think have enough respect for the rule of law that they would never approve this. But I don't agree that it couldn't have been done without their approval. I have some doubts that it'll ever be discovered. Now, if it turned out that one of these justices were involved in it, there doesn't seem to be anything in the Supreme Court by which the justices could discipline one of their own justices. However, the Congress could begin impeachment proceedings and removal proceedings, and I think those proceedings would probably succeed. So that's the situation, and I hope that helps understand why this is very important. Yeah, that's that's very helpful. I mean, look, I, I know the courts are supposed to have a degree of transparency, but when you explain, you know, how... Uh, being tipped off ahead of time may have prompted, you know, a, a settlement offer where they wouldn't have been willing to before. Yeah, it's not letting justice play out as, as it should. Anyway, it certainly has raised some questions that are all kinds of articles being written right now, editorials and everything being written right now about what's going to happen if Roe versus Wade is in fact overturned. Well, the simple answer is if Roe versus Wade is overturned, what it will mean is we'll go back to the states. I kind of like what Senator Josh Hawley said yesterday, that basically what Roe versus Wade means is that the people are too stupid to decide this issue. So the court has to decide it for them. Well, let's talk more about that after the break. This is our final segment on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. You are listening to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo. 
All right, Colonel, you were mentioning that uh, the Supreme Court essentially said uh, the people are too dumb (laughs) to make these kinds of weighty decisions for themselves. Let's pick up from there. Sure. Back in the 1960s and early 70s, there was quite a drive to legalize abortion in America, but it seemed like somewhere around 1920, that drive pressed and the tide was shifting the other way against legalizing abortion. In fact, it was either in 70 or in 72, there were proposals to liberalize abortion laws that went before the voters, and they were defeated in Michigan by a two-to-one margin and in North Dakota by a three-to-one margin. So in 1973, in Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court said the people no longer get to vote on this because we are deciding that there is a constitutional right to abortion. Granted, that right is not found anywhere in the Constitution, but when the 14th Amendment speaks about states not depriving people of life, liberty, or property without due process, the term liberty includes the right to make decisions about one's life, but that includes the right to decide whether or not to have a child. And so the court said that in the 14th Amendment, you have emanations and penumbras. In other words, you have things that flow out of us that form auras and shadows, and in those auras and shadows, we see things like abortion, and not too many years later, they'll start to say, and gay rights, same-sex marriage, and things like this, they come out of that same kind of reasoning. What this does is it removes the Constitution from any kind of objective scholarship and basically means that the Constitution is going to be interpreted the way any judge in his own imagination wants to interpret it. And this becomes dangerous because the same court that can read into the Constitution rights that are not there can also read out of the Constitution rights that are there and can read into the Constitution government powers that are not there. It's a very dangerous reading of the Constitution. In fact, many of the time, including liberal constitutional scholars like Lawrence Tribe, said that this is a bad decision, even though I like the ultimate result. This is a, constitutionally, it's a very unsound decision. I remember... Back in, I believe it was 1977, shortly after Roe versus Wade, I was at a conference of about 30 law professors, and the vast majority of them were liberal, but not one of them would say that they thought Roe versus Wade was properly decided as a matter of constitutional law. Most of them were for abortion, but they said the Constitution doesn't say there's a right to abortion, and therefore, the states should be able to regulate it as they see fit. Well, all that the Supreme Court decision here in Dobbs versus Jackson would do, if it comes out the way this draft opinion by Justice Alito has indicated, all that they will be able to do is go back to the states and let the states decide this as they should have been able to decide it from the very beginning. Now, there's one other way of looking at this, too, and there are some who have argued that when you read that term life, liberty, or property in the 14th Amendment, that the word life means that there is a constitutionally guaranteed right to life, and that guarantee begins at conception, and therefore, it means that federally guaranteed right to 
to life must take precedence over any state law that would permit abortion. But the court is very unlikely to go that route. Makes some sense, but the court is unlikely to do that. So what's going to happen is really a compromise. The compromise is that this will be a matter for states to decide as they see fit, which really, even though I strongly favor the right to life, right. laws concerning homicide, murder, and the like, we have those at the state level, and that's probably where they really belong. And what it would mean then is some states, at least for the foreseeable future, will still legalize abortion. In fact, many states have been preparing for a decision like what seems to be coming down here at Dobbs versus Jackson. Some states have been passing laws that restrict abortion in the hope that those laws will be able to be enforced once the Roe versus Wade decision is overturned. In Alabama, for example, we adopted a statute that prohibits abortion at all stages, but makes a few exceptions, like for the life and health of the mother, and also provides that in the case of an abortion, the mother may not be prosecuted, but the persons who perform or assist in the abortion can be prosecuted for it. Mississippi's law, the one that's in contest here, would prohibit abortion after 15 weeks. Several other states have adopted laws that would prohibit abortion any time after a fetal heartbeat can be detected, which is after about four weeks. It looks like the heartbeat actually begins about 18 days after conception, but can be detected on an EKG after four weeks. But anyway, then there are other laws, fetal pain, that you can't have abortion any time after the child has reached the stage where the child is capable of feeling pain. Interestingly enough, in abortions and as they're going on right now, the mother is getting an anesthetic for pain, the baby is not. But anyway, so plain fact of the matter is, many states are preparing for this, many liberal states have been preparing for it too. They've been providing in their state constitutions and in their state statutes that there is a constitutional right to abortion in this state. Some of them have gone so far as to say that this right to abortion will be fully protected for whatever reason whatsoever right up to the point of birth, and there's even an indication in Virginia that it might even include the right to let a child die right after birth. Anyway, so the states are still working on this. However, I think that it's going to result in a substantial reduction in the number of abortions. I say that because you look how people feel about this. There are some people who are just simply pro-abortion. I don't use the term pro-choice because the baby doesn't get a choice. They are pro-abortion. And they will have an abortion whether the law allows it or not. There are many others, and this is a large portion of the population, that is morally opposed to abortion. And they're saying, I, won't, I wouldn't get an abortion whether it was legal or not. I wouldn't, even if abortion is legal in my state, I would not have one. But then in between, you have a lot of people who loosely equate morality and legality and would say, well, also is abortion okay? I guess I can have an abortion. If the law says abortion isn't okay, then I guess I have to treat abortion as though it's wrong and I won't have one. And so I think that with the large number of people that are in that middle category, 
that the number of abortions is going to go down and go down quite dramatically. But and it might be gradual, but I think it's going to happen. However, the campaign to protect the right to life is certainly far from over. Every state will be a battleground. Every, every state will have to litigate issues of those who would like to make abortion illegal and those who would like to make it legal. Beyond that, we will continue to have people who will be arguing against abortion in states where it is legal. And you will have crisis pregnancy centers who are trying to show people that, in fact, this baby really is a living human being. And so that's going to be going on all over the country. And the effort to save human lives is going to continue. And I, I really think that in so many ways, we have been losing the culture war. And gay rights, for example, even 15 years ago, when we were talking about gays in the military, I never imagined we'd go so far as to approve same-sex marriage. And even in 2015, with the Obergefell decision for same-sex marriage, I never imagined that we'd come to the point of transgender and all the things we're talking about now. But on that issue, we've been losing dramatically. On the question of the right to life, there, I think we've been making progress. Increasing numbers of people in polls indicate that they believe that the unborn child is a living human being and that abortion should not be allowed except for a few extreme exceptions. And that seems to be true, especially among younger people who are coming to that conclusion. And so that I find encouraging. But encouraging mothers on an individual basis Having crisis pregnancy centers where we show mothers that there is an alternative to abortion and providing for the mother who is pregnant and has no way of supporting her child, showing ways that we can help a mother in a situation like that, those things are going to be needed, needed as much as ever. And again, demonstrating to people that this child is a human being, that Every time we persuade somebody not to have an abortion, we are saving a human life. That battle is going to go on and will probably never end.